Are you ready to take the lead in the dance of life? Fall in love with who you are right now and find uninhibited joy every day? Then it's time for you to flaunt your smart, sexy, and spiritual self. Join radio host Laura Cheadle and learn how the five steps of flaunt can help you quit seeking approval, proving your worth, and release you from the judgment of others. Express all that you are, discover your naked self-worth, and finally, enjoy the life you've worked so hard to create. Hello, welcome to Flaunt, Build Your Dreams and Live Your Sparkle. I'm Laura Cheadle, and oh my gosh, I don't know about you, but I feel like my sparkle has kind of been blocked lately, a lot lately, between COVID, between the elections, between all of the stuff that's going on, fires, riots, there's just a lot. And those are only the big things. The results of a lot of those things, job loss, financial insecurity, it just goes on and on. And I think there's a lot of people out there right now that are just not feeling very sparkly. People are having mental health issues and they're having a hard enough time dealing with themselves, but then they have to deal with family or they have to deal with a coworker. And that just amps up the level of stress and anxiety because they don't know how to respond to other people. Literally, when all of your focus is on taking care of yourself, you just don't have the resources to handle or to manage somebody else. That's why it's so important, especially right now, for all of us to be aware of the resources that we have, to be aware of the people out there who are proactively taking steps to help you tone down some of that fear, manage some of that anxiety. Today's guest is one of those people who is brilliant. She has got so much knowledge and wisdom and insight And she really knows how to give support, education, and guidance to aspiring allies and to anti-racists. Now, before we go into that a little bit more, just because we're focusing on aspiring allies and anti-racists doesn't mean that these tools, tricks, and insights are only good for those certain things. This is something that you can use when you're in a political conversation with somebody, when you're just having a difficult conversation. So please give us about 20 minutes, learn what you can, and I promise that the information today's, that today's guests brings you will change your world your ability to manage your own stress, and your ability to help those around you. My guest today is Rebecca Eldridge, and she is a PhD. I told you she was amazing. She's a licensed psychologist with a focus on providing guidance and support for aspiring allies and anti-racists, as well as cultural sensitivity therapy for all adults. 
Throughout her doctoral training in counseling psychology, she pursued a multicultural specialization. Since then, she has been blessed with a variety of meaningful opportunities, including teaching multicultural counseling graduate courses, developing and offering support groups and home visits for female refugees in Houston, Texas, and providing cultural training and consultation to both individuals and groups. Throughout the past 19 years, she has been deeply humbled and honored with the trust of hundreds of therapy clients from diverse identities and backgrounds. Just this year, because of all of the things that are going on, she began creating a new program that offers guidance and support for aspiring allies and anti-racists who want to break free from the status quo and be able to speak up confidently against bias, even in their closest relationships, without burnout, with greater hope, and without ticking off the people that you care the most about. So Rebecca, enough about me blabbing about you. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. There's a lot going on right now. And I would like to start just by having you share what you are seeing, the stress and anxiety that you are witnessing so our listeners can feel a little bit more normal in that what they may be feeling is actually normal. Absolutely. I am hearing that again and again across every place that I interact, whether it's in the therapy room with clients, whether it's in communities that are discussing racial injustices, other social injustices, people are so worn out right now and they feel like I just can't take one more thing. I can't even focus. I can't think straight. Like just figuring out how to get through the day to day is already maxing us out, right? Because we're constantly bombarded. I mean, the constancy of the news cycles, the conversations with friends and family. I don't know if I've talked to anybody who doesn't have at least one person who's close to them, who's currently on a totally different end of the of the spectrum and somehow right now all of it's become political and it's all heightened at least in the united states right now by this election cycle that we're in and so even people that usually prefer not to be political or not to be really outspoken in their beliefs are finding themselves confronted with these conversations where everything's a tell and everything brings up a potential disagreement and it's just wearing everybody out You said something so important that everything is being politicized right now. And you're right. I recently had an interaction um, with a gentleman when I asked about a recycle bin and suddenly recycling became political. It's like, oh, you're recycling. Are you one of those libtards? And I was like, whoa, (laughs) I just want to put my water bottle in a recycling, but thank you for that. Yeah. And, and that's it too, right? It's like, when you're not even inviting it, not even expecting it, all of a sudden there's this animosity or hostility that, that just jumps into the interaction and you're not prepared for it. There's no reason that you would be expecting it at that time. Exactly. Now, 
I know that part of the reason we're stressed is because it's a lot, because it's unexpected, because it's nonstop, but also because we care. Flat out, if we didn't care and we were watching this news cycle that none of us cared about, it wouldn't impact us because we wouldn't care. I know for me, the reason that it impacts me so much is I feel such grief and such sadness and such the drive to do something. But then I feel helpless because I don't know what to do. Absolutely, Laura. I mean, that, that too is going on across the board. I mean, I think even people who feel like under normal circumstances, they kind of would know what to do. When we're in this state of overwhelm, we can't think as clearly, we can't problem solve as effectively. And at the same time, I want to acknowledge the other piece of what you said, that there's something really good in how bad we're feeling about it, because it does mean that we don't want to just leave it the way it is. Like we care. And if we didn't care, we wouldn't be feeling bad about it. And so that in itself can be our motivation and our driving force and our incentive to stay engaged and to figure out a way through. And it doesn't have to be an either or. I think that's, that's sometimes where we get a little confused or mixed up is thinking like, okay, either I take care of myself and then I'm being selfish because I'm not helping others or doing the things that I think would make a difference or I'm burning myself out and I'm trying to put all this energy that I don't even have into this and I don't even know that I'm doing it right and so it doesn't feel good and I'm just spinning my wheels and it feels like it's one or the other when really both of those things go hand in hand that if we can learn how to deal with the negative emotions, then that in itself can be our inspiration and our energy for doing what matters to us and feeling good about it. Yes. And I feel like that's where you come in. How do we manage this? How do we know what to do? And I, I'm going to seed this conversation a little bit, just, just, you know, so the listeners can kind of get on board. I want to be an anti-racist. I want to be an ally. I want to be an engaged citizen. I want to create a beautiful world. And I don't know where to start. And if it really, if the truth were really to be told, sometimes I don't even know what that really means. I don't really know what it means to get engaged. Do I show up at a march? Do I call my senator? And that can shut me down personally. And I'm willing to bet that many of the listeners feel the same way. Laura, Rebecca, I want to do right. I want to be an ally. I want to, what does it mean? What does it look like? What do I do? Oh, let me just go watch Netflix. <laughs> for sure. Can you break that down for us? I will try. And the first thing I'll say about that is that there's no perfection in it and there's no one way to do it. And I think that sometimes part of why it gets so overwhelmed and into a network Netflix binge is because we look at the, the people we see on center stage, um, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg's or the Martin Luther King Jr.'s or the Harvey Milk's, the people who have really been engaged in the iconic figures, right? And we're like, 
if we don't see ourselves in those people, then we feel like whatever we can do is so small in comparison. And part of it is that the small things count too, that the small things are what adds up into the big things that none of those people could have done everything that they did without the support and the people that were around them that were, yes, marching, yes, protesting, yes, signing petitions, yes, calling politicians, writing letters, um, speaking up in the community. So often those things get minimized or overlooked. People feel like they're insignificant and yet it's the thousands or millions of people joining together and taking those steps that are what creates the tidal wave towards change. So I really like people to know that those things count and those things matter and that is also not only one right way to do it. Some people are gonna be the loud voices that can be on a megaphone at a protest and rally people around them. Some people are gonna be the writers that can write a petition that thousands of people that can sign or that can write excellent convincing letters that could be used as templates to send or that can do lots of signatures. And I will say that the action piece is one piece of this work in terms of creating it long-term, sustainable, combining it with mental health and emotional health. It's not the only thing. And we don't really do that well unless we're taking care of these other pieces. Um, so if you like, I can say a little bit about those other pieces too. Yes, yes. I, I love how this spirals in because it is a global problem. Then we get the news cycle in the US and it becomes a United States problem. We've got our state, we've got our immediate circle. And I liked the word insignificance because you're right. It feels insignificant to make one phone call or to write one letter, but it does make an impact. And then if I'm not mentally healthy enough to get up off the couch, I can't make a call anyway. So that's even spiraling it in deeper. Let's talk about just that. How do we keep our own sanity and our mental health in times like this? Yeah, so it's such a huge topic. Um, I think it goes back to some of the things that you already asked about and that we already said, like if we don't have a healthy relationship with how to handle our own emotions, so knowing, okay, what do I do when I feel bad? What do I do to keep myself from getting as down in the pits? What are the things that work for me? And this is a, directly in line with your work, you know, because like the sparkle piece of like what helps to people to maintain their sparkle, to regain their sparkle. And that might not be the same for every single person. And yet knowing, okay, when I feel bad, what are the ways that I can channel this into feeling better? Because our emotions are often our wisest guides towards what we need. And when we try not to see them, when we try to avoid them or escape them, well, here's how I often talk about it. They're like young children. Our emotions, like if they do not get our attention, they're gonna get louder 
and their behavior is going to get more insistent and they're going to be screaming and they're going to be tugging at a leg and they're going to be acting out in whatever ways they need to to get our attention Mm. and our emotions do exactly the same thing so if we can find a way just like with a child to turn toward them and give them that attention that can help to remove some of the immediate intensity And then we can actually listen. Okay, what are you needing my attention about? What is it that you're trying to show me? What are you trying to tell me here? Again, same thing with between a child, same thing with our emotions, is they're not trying to work against us. Our emotions are not trying to be our enemy. They're a normal, natural part of our life. And so they actually are there to guide us towards what we need. And when we can learn to build a positive relationship with them, then we can actually use them to live healthier. So are my emotions telling me that I need to take a break and I need to rest or that I need to move or that I need to get outside or that I need to connect to somebody that I love or that can listen to me and hear me right now? Mm. You know, it could be a million different things. Right. One thing that I hear a lot and I think around this work, it comes up as well, very often, is I can't look at my emotions because I will completely lose control. I will break down. I can't look at it. Rebecca, that sounds great. I get that under normal circumstances, but I can't right now. What do you say to somebody who's feeling that way? Well, I mean, usually this is a therapy conversation, to be honest with you. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I look at like what has actually happened. Like there's a fear there, right? There's a fear that I can't, that I won't be able to handle it. I won't be able to cope. And what's that based on for one thing? Because usually that's a myth. Usually that, that narrative, that way of speaking to ourselves is is usually pretty false and it's usually not supported by the evidence either. Um, usually as scary as it is, as if we look at what, what is the monster in the closet, what is the monster under the bed, once we shine a light on it, it's a dust bunny. You know, once, once we take a closer look, then we realize like, oh, I can get out a vacuum or, or you know, sweep it up. And it's not actually as terrible as we expected it to be. And in fact, the release of the emotions, even if it is a good cry or a scream or a, a, you know, hysteric laughter, you know, all of these things that are actually releases of those emotions are so much healthier for us than holding it in and trying to pretend it's not there. Mm -hmm. And the balance of what we've just talked about the turning towards the emotion, releasing it, focusing on it. And we've also balanced that with taking action because sometimes taking action helps release that emotion because you go from being powerless to being powerful because you've just sent a letter. Yeah, absolutely. And people surprise themselves all the time. You know, people are so resilient and once they're actually living in that space of what they can do right now, then it helps to ease the helplessness and the hopelessness. 
feel stronger and feel more empowered. You feel like, oh, okay, like that wasn't so bad after all. Yeah, I can send another letter. Or, I mean, I think the scariest thing for a lot of people is having those conversations with loved ones. Yes, (laughs) that was exactly where I wanted to go next. It's like, you know, keep, keep narrowing that focus. Okay, now we're taking care of ourselves. Now we know some actions. Now we can do this, but we've got holidays coming up. We've got family dinners and it's the elections. And how do we have a conversation with grandpa, whoever, or uncle, whoever, who is diametrically opposed to us mm-hmm. and still keep that relationship? Absolutely. So one of the things that, that I've put together is five different ways to speak up. And you can think about it in terms of quest, the quest to speak up, the quest to feel better, the quest to be a better ally, you know, it's the process that we're in. And so it doesn't, again, have to be perfect. And it's not going to be, and it's not going to be the same thing every time, because in order for that to be the case, one, we would have to be able to be mind readers, we would have to know the other person's mind enough to know exactly what was going to shift or change that discussion or have an impact for them which we cannot do. And two, we would have to be able to think that there's something in the world that you can say to somebody who's in a totally different place in their own process and experiences and thoughts on something that's going to cause them to whip their head around and see it from 180 degrees difference. And that's not how it works. Uh So when we talk about those conversations, one of the things that we can do right off the bat is change the purpose and the expectation of how we're approaching the conversation. So if the, Ooh, if the purpose, purpose and the expectation, okay. instead of the purpose being, I'm going to have this conversation that's going to change this person's mind right now, or the expectation being, if I do this right, then it's never going to have to happen again. And Instead, we say like, okay, there's, there can be a lot of different incentives. One, it can be practice because if you're going to stay engaged in this work, which by stay engaged, I just mean not tuning it out, not burying your head in the sand, not trying to pretend that it doesn't exist. So if we're going to stay engaged, then we can approach it from that place of this conversation can be practice for all these other conversations I'm going to have. I don't have to do it perfectly. I don't have to expect that I'm going to change this person's mind entirely. Maybe I shift their mind one degree. Maybe nothing seems different in this conversation. And yet maybe the next conversation or the next conversation they have, whether it's with me or with somebody else, maybe they hear something different. It also means that it can make the position of love and respect for people more of the loud majority. Mm-hmm. And I think about this in terms of um, what I know about how Germany handled their history post-World War II, that they don't continue to celebrate Nazism. And so, you know, there, there might be elements that are always hateful, but we don't need to keep making those so acceptable and so normalized. So the more we speak up, we can say, 
I'm creating part of the shift towards what's going to be the norm, what's going to be the majority of what's spoken and what's acceptable. And the options for that, to go back to the quest framework, you can ask a question. A question might just be something like, how did you come to that point of view? Or, you know, what, what makes you believe that? It can start with curiosity. It doesn't have to start from a place of attack because we don't change people's minds by attacking them. So there's nothing wrong with trying to approach it in a way that's respectful to the relationship that you have and somebody that you love. You don't have to respect what they're saying or their point of view in order to try to have the conversation in a respectful way. You as a understanding. So finding what can you understand or connect with of what that person is saying. Maybe there's an emotion there that you can connect with. Um, I think of people saying like, oh, immigrants are gonna come and they're gonna steal all our good jobs. And what's the emotion behind that is maybe a source of fear yeah. or a sense of financial insecurity. And so being able to acknowledge maybe a piece of it sounds like you're really afraid or that it's really scary to think that you might not be able to get a good job that you would want, that somebody else might get that instead. You can start from um, E as a place of experience or emotion, and that's speaking of your own experience or emotion. So this is where you can say, I feel really sad hearing you say that. Or, you know, one of the common ones is like, ouch, you know, just kind of a short thing that just shows like there was a reaction to what was said. Um, or in my experience, that hasn't been the case at all. In S, you can just speak from a statement of support. And so that could be if the person's railing against Black Lives Matter, for example, just saying, I support Black Lives Matter. And T can be truth or test. So you can test their truth. What's your evidence for that? Might be a way to do that. Or you can speak your truth. You know, I firmly disagree with what you're saying. And you'll notice that these are not all elaborate paragraph long. I'm gonna give you all the data on this subject to prove how mistaken you are, because that's not what people are gonna to respond to initially anyway. No. You're trying to just have the first response to that conversation that can help you decide where to go with it from there. I really like that. And again, it is short. It's simple. It's a great acronym. And it doesn't create defensiveness. And as you were going through those steps, I was thinking about my grandfather who was deceased. He was a pilot in the Korean War and in World War II. His entire life, anybody he would see of any of Asian descent, dirty Japs, dirty Japs. And it was offensive and it hurt. But at the same time, when we would talk, and he would talk about the wartime propaganda, he would talk about being alive during Pearl Harbor and fearing for his own life, you get this understanding. Of course, you are racist. 
Of course, you lived that. That's a lot to break down. And using those questions, I can see how that would bring him some moments of understanding. Ouch, that's not appropriate in 1998, <laughs> you know, when he was still alive. Ooh, I don't support that. I have many connections with Asian people and they are not that way at all. Mm-hmm. I understand that must have been painful for you and terrifying. Your life was in danger, not only in one war, but in two. Mm-hmm. That brings you together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we have the most influence with the people who love and respect us. So even if we're not starting from a place of seeing it the same way, I mean, there, there's so much to this, right? People have their own processes, like you're talking about with your grandfather, and I have people in my family too, you know, their experiences have shaped them. And really the, rea- the reality is that we don't escape that influence in our culture today either, because yeah. even as hard as we work, we're trying to unlearn these implicit biases, these underlying assumptions and stereotypes that have worked their way into all sorts of shows and movies and media and conversations in communities that we live in and laws, the way that the laws are structured, the way that the laws are implemented. You know, so I don't sit here talking about this, pretending that I'm perfect at this and that I don't make any of these same mistakes. You know, I'm sitting here talking as somebody who's worked for years and years to be more aware of those things and to be able to try to dismantle them in myself and contribute and support the efforts to dismantle them in the wider culture. Thank you for making that statement because there's also a fear that I can't say anything because I will put my foot in my mouth. And I know that has happened to me and probably everybody I know where you think you're supporting and you want to support and you say somebody and somebody goes, that was a huge microaggression. How dare, and you think, forget it. I'm not going to say anything ever again because I can't win. And is that Mm -hmm. a common feeling? Is that, am I normal, Rebecca? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Yes, Laura, you're normal. Um, Robin D'Angelo writes about this and in her books and the white fragility is, I mean, it's a common experience and the piece of that to speak to you too is that we do not grow up in this society, in this culture, learning how to have these conversations. And so when we come into a conversation with our big broken heart and and we feel like our intentions are fully in the right place and then we make a misstep or we, we trip ourselves up and we don't even know that we were because of course our intention was the complete opposite of that, then that fragility does tend to show up. And that's not to, patholo- in, my, in my perspective, that's not to be judgmental towards that. It's to acknowledge that this is a reality of where it goes back to kind of building our emotional resilience to say, I am going to make mistakes and we make mistakes in every area of our life all the time. I mean, as much as we might try to be perfect, and I for sure am guilty of perfectionism. Oh yes, me too. Like we don't achieve that ever in any area on any day. 
And so why should this area that's so difficult and where we've been breathing the air of injustice our whole lives yes. without knowing it, where we've been the fish in the fishbowl without realizing we're living in water, like then how, how would we learn otherwise until we actually try and we learn the most when we make mistakes? So it's not about not making the mistakes. It's about trying to figure out, again, how to take care of ourselves so that when we feel that frustration, that sadness, that hurt, really because we've let ourselves down and let down the people that we were trying so hard to support, how to, okay, like these are my emotions. How do I collect myself? How do I take care of this? And instead of reacting defensively or shutting down, how do I move through that, that fight, flight, or freeze response that comes on automatically and then move back into how do I learn from this and how does this actually help me and what I'm really trying to do? Because what it ultimately it's not about me being perfect. Ultimately, it's about trying to live in a way that I can feel good about and look myself in the mirror and go to sleep at night, feeling the peace of knowing that I'm doing the best that I can in the way that I can be proud of not because I got it perfect, mm -hmm. because I'm showing up and I'm trying and I'm learning along the way. Well said. We're going to take a couple of minutes break for a word from a sponsor. And when we come back, hang on to that idea of fight, flight, or freeze. Because when we come back, I want to walk you through the five steps of flaunt. And what I always say is when you find yourself going into fight, flight, or freeze, start to flaunt. And I would like to walk you through those five steps first so listeners can get to know you a little bit more. And then second, so you can share as much wisdom, tips, ideas, strategies that listeners can use. So when they find themselves going, I, I'm, I'm overloading, I'm overloading, or I'm depressed and give me some wine, that they can start having some real actionable steps to take. So we will be right back. You're a smart woman who has achieved a lot. But are you happy? Do you sparkle with joy and enthusiasm? Or are you living life on autoplay? You're not alone. Many successful women reach a point where they realize that they're not enjoying themselves, their jobs, or their families in the way that they thought they would. No matter what's blocking your sparkle, you can live full out and enjoy life again right now. Not after you lose 15 pounds, find love, or the kids leave home. Go to www.nakedselfworth.com and download the top 20 things that block your sparkle and what to do about them so you can stop seeking to please, proving your worth, and settling for less, and start living life on your own terms with enthusiasm, joy, and plenty of sparkle. And we are back with Rebecca Eldridge, and we are talking about being an anti-racist, being an ally. We're talking about going deep and trying to do the right thing because you care. Now, we all might define that a little bit differently, and that's okay. We're all at a different place on the path, but we're all trying. 
And trying is messy, messy business. And when we try, we mess up. And instead of shutting down or getting overwhelmed or getting angry or defensive, we really need to take a deep breath, move out of fight, flight, or freeze, and keep going. And what I like to say is when you find yourself going into or deep in to fight, flight, or freeze, start to flaunt. And flaunt is an acronym for find your fetish. Laugh out loud. Accept unconditionally. Navigate the negative and trust in your truth. So Rebecca, let's start with that F piece, that find your fetish. Fetish is such a fun word <laughs> because to me, it means play. Kids play for the sake of play. They don't play to become a better ally. They don't play to impress their parents. They play because it feels good and it allows them to de-stress. Being an ally is kind of stressful. Even if you're doing it because it's in alignment with your values and because you want to be a better person and because people that you love are being impacted, it's hard. How do you find the fun in being an ally? How do you find the fun in doing this hard work? And what is the role of finding those pieces of enjoyment to keep you going? Mm. Good questions. And I love, I love those different pieces of flaunt, by the way. Um, so in terms of finding the enjoyment and being an ally, that, for, that just comes naturally at this point because of the relationships that I've been able to experience and value and getting to know different people, people from different backgrounds, people with different experiences. So for me, that and the relationships that I built up are really, really the heart of it. And what do you like to do when you find yourself getting stressed out? What do you enjoy doing? What can you start adding into your day to make you feel better? Oh, well, being a psychologist gives me lots of tools. It does. <laughs> um, some of my favorites, I mean, I love being outside in nature. So taking in, and I know your um, kind of theme this month was gratitude and grace. And yes, today, it was a rainy, dreary day um, where I am cold and wet. And yet, I was thinking like, you know, I'm so thankful we're not in a drought, you know, and I'm so thankful that we're also not flooding, you know, and, and that this will, this will make the earth healthier. And so for me, the nature, regardless of the weather has, has been a huge piece of it. Um, music. I also love just being able to put on music, different music that kind of fits with the emotions or the mood that I'm in or that I'm wanting to visit. Um, I, I love that as well. And then lots of different breathing and meditation strategies. So mm -hmm. if, if anyone's looking to try something new, there's, um, or that might be new to them, there's a technique called, well, is it, Emotional freedom technique is its official name, but people might know it or hear of it as tapping. And I love it. It's one of the things that 
for me and for what I've seen with other people, it's one of the quickest, most effective ways to bring down negative intensity, not by avoiding it and by addressing it in a healthy way. So I, I use that pretty regularly too. Oh, that's amazing. I love that too. I even just love the language around EFT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh yeah. The second step of flaunt is L, laugh out loud. And laughter laughter feels good <laughs> and it's fun. And there's a lot of research that backs up its benefits. Wow. Laughter, racism. There is a lot there. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Because laughter can break down walls. And there's a difference between laughing at and laughing with. And I think humor is one of those areas where people do step in it sometimes unintentionally. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it can bridge a lot of gaps. And as a backdrop, my family and I just watched Blazing Saddles not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And we actually st- re- started reading some commentary about that. And the use of wildly inappropriate stereotypes, but showing them in regards to the fact that this is wildly inappropriate and this is why and how that can actually help. And other people find it very offensive and it's just so difficult. And I'm just handing this big prickly ball off to you and saying, Rebecca, (laughs) laughter, (laughs) racism. How, how does this all work? Um, Well, let me say, It could be a laughter, like you said, as a form of staying healthy and coping that may not be about racism directly, like finding avenues for laughter in our lives that help us to rejuvenate and reconnect to continuing to be involved as an ally and moving forward as an anti-racist. Yeah, I think I wanted to mention about what you said there, that the different perspectives, the different opinions like as white people, we don't expect that every white person is going to think the same joke is funny or is going to think the same solution to a problem is the best one. And so there's, there's no basis for expecting that all black people or all native people or all Hispanic people are going to be thinking and feeling the same way about what's right, whether it's language, whether it's humor, whether it's problem solving, you know, there's much more actually um, diversity of everything within a group than there is between groups. And so, so I, I do not say that I, I don't walk into most settings saying like, Hey, let me joke around about this. Um, you know, and yet, like, like you said, laughter is an important part of life and it's based on the relationship. So I'll give a separate example, which is I studied in Scotland for a semester. And in my family, we have a very dry sense of humor. And that is often misunderstood when I use that kind of sarcasm with people in the United States. And then when I was in Scotland, all of a sudden, people that I met there were like, wow, we didn't know that Americans had a sense of humor or that Americans knew how to use sarcasm. I was like, 
wow, that felt so good to be able to use that and feel like they get it. And here I'm, I'm careful. I'm cautious about who I use it with or to what extent so that it doesn't get misunderstood. And yet culturally for me, that's a part of my background. So, you know, I think that speaks to the point around finding places to laugh and ways to laugh. And yet not everybody is going to find the same jokes funny. Mm -hmm. And I am probably putting words in your mouth, but I am willing to bet that even when you come out with a sarcastic comment, even if somebody doesn't get it, you feel a little bit better inside because you're like, ha ha, that was funny. They didn't get that. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes, you know, if people don't get sarcasm, sometimes it can come across in a way that's very opposite of how I intend it. So that's where I try to be very cautious that it doesn't come across as cutting or demeaning to somebody else. Mm, No, that's true. And that goes right into that next step, accept unconditionally. We have to accept unconditionally that not everybody thinks, believes, feels the same way we do. And that while we might be very passionate about one thing, it doesn't make it right or wrong or good or bad. It just is. I'm going to, so this is a tricky spot in this area. You know, if you're trying to accept diversity, value diversity, value differences, then how can you disagree with white supremacy? They're a part of diversity too. So, so I will say that there is a way in which I have to draw a line there around, I can accept a person is doing the best they can for what they've learned and what they know at this point in time. I can look at how we're each molded and influenced. And if I were born into different circumstances, I would have a different perspective than what I have now. And that there, there's that whole nature nurture stuff. I won't try to bore everybody with that. Um, but I will just say, you know, I can have a lot of compassion for people unconditionally and still draw the line around certain behaviors not being acceptable. So I do not go as far as saying, I will tolerate intolerance. I, because that, that's such a contradiction to affirming the value in diversity. Um, and that might be controversial and different. Again, not everybody's gonna see that the same way, but that's where I am at this point in wrestling with those questions. I can value each person's worth as a human being and then still say there are certain behaviors and certain attitudes that I'm not gonna be affirming of if they cross the line of respecting somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that is so difficult for a lot of people. And I've heard in heated social media exchanges and things like that, people throwing that back and forth. Well, you have to tolerate this. And if you have to, t- and there are things I don't choose to have in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, is it a boundary or is it an intolerance? And is that good? Or, and that's hard. That was very well said. Well, and I think too, Laura, like we can, we can look at perhaps, um, Another heavy example would be abusive relationships, right? Where right. we can say, I, I can care about this person and 
I'm still not willing to accept this behavior. Like it doesn't have to mean that we are actively trying to, to hate or disregard or disrespect someone. And yet there, there are boundaries around being healthy for ourselves and what we're doing and what the way that we're living and the people we're interacting with. So I can have a respectful conversation with someone who disagrees with me, but if that person chooses not to be respectful or to engage in a way that's healthy, then, you know, my choice in that matter would be to say like, okay, I don't want to talk anymore right now. We could try again under different circumstances and it's possible or maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. What I had said earlier about flaunt being a way to get you out of fight, flight, or freeze. I think the hardest thing sometimes is to accept unconditionally like that, that you might never be able to have a conversation with this person. You might never want them in your life. You might never. And you can't make yourself crazy thinking that if you tap dance faster, you will get them to change their opinion because they won't. Mm -hmm. And in order to take care of your own mental health and well-being and to impact other people or situations, sometimes you do need to disengage, accept unconditionally that not you, and move on to the people where you will have influence and where you will have impact and where you can stay mentally healthy and not completely triggered. Absolutely. And to, to tie something back into our earlier conversation about this, like that's where you look at what are the benefits of saying something right now and how far to go in the conversation, if at all, because there might be some situations, some public interactions where you know you're not going to change that person's mind and you still choose to say something, even a brief statement of disagreement because you want to make sure that you're not leaving that burden to the other people in the room who are already carrying it. Thank you for saying that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That is so important. So, you know, there can be different reasons for speaking up or not speaking up at different times. And it's not always just about the person you're saying it to. And yeah, I think that that, that role of saying this isn't just a, a problem for the black person in the room and they it's up to them if they want to choose to address it or confront that either explicit aggressive statement or that microaggression. And so sometimes we say something because we're trying to support or carry some of that to share some piece of that, that has been a part of our system. Yes. And that's perfectly moving into the end, which is navigate the negative. Do you have any tips for navigating? Because earlier you had said, we can't read people's minds. We never know when we're going to be, life's a minefield. (laughs) And what are your tips for just toning down that anxiety, keeping yourself out? Because if I pre-plan some responses, pre-plan some situations, think some things through, I feel better and I'm much more able to navigate in the moment. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And yet so often we try to do all of that. And then the situation that happens is not any of the ones that we planned for. (laughs) No, but I do like to have maybe five or six talking points or sound bites where I do have the information. I do have the statistics. I'm not just left there saying, but, but, but that's not right. But, but, but I can actually say something that does not bait somebody. But that is a factual, easy statement. Like you said earlier, ouch. Mm-hmm. So if you're asking, let me clarify, are you asking about navigating the negative like externally, like in our relationships with and interactions around us or navigating the negative internally or both? Both. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because they, they can go hand in hand or certainly be complementary to each other. Um, So navigating the negative internally, well, the tapping that I mentioned is a really good, really good one for that. Um, There's also an approach where you kind of sit with, it's a little bit maybe similar if people listening know meditation, but where you kind of combine a, a tuning in with visualization a lot of times, it's, um, it's called felt sense. And so that's a really good one for kind of noticing what you're feeling and reflecting, kind of closing your eyes, breathing, tuning into that. And then people have amazing, amazing experiences of kind of what they see in that space, if they can visualize what's going on inside, if they can get closer to it, take a closer look, or even view it like it's on a screen where they can turn the volume down or up or change the channel. Um, So I love experiential techniques like that for the internal piece of it. Um, And for the external, navigating the negative, I'm going to well, your quest, really. Yeah, the quest does, and the fight, flight, or freeze, like you talked about. Um, you know, when when we or someone else is in fight, flight, or freeze, there is no productive conversation that's going to happen in that moment because neither brain is in a space physiologically where it can process and hear each other. And so it does come back to either self-regulating and kind of calming and Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne have a phrase, name it to tame it. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really, it's simple and powerful. It's about naming the emotion because when we can make sense of what we're feeling and when we feel understood in what we're feeling, that soothes that part of the brain that's having that fight, flight, or freeze response. And so either being able to name for ourselves, okay, this is what's going on. This is what I'm experiencing right now. And just put words to it. Even I'm anxious, I'm overwhelmed, I'm scared, I'm angry. Or to be able to observe that in somebody else. I can see how angry and upset you are right now. Mm -hmm. And something to navigate the negative for one or both people to bring that intensity down to where you can say... can it be brought down in that moment? And then to decide, okay, do we, do we continue the conversation? Can we do it in a different way? Do we table it for another time? Or do we set a boundary that says, this isn't a topic that we can continue with right now? Mm -hmm. Love that. The last step is T, trust in your truth. 
And this is my favorite question to ask people because it's emotion-based, it's feeling-based. You had started off by talking that this is your passion, that understanding people, differences, traveling, connection, that's all your passion. But what about you? Who is Rebecca? What is your deepest truth? Hmm. Well, it is hard for me to separate those things. And my dad likes to tell this story about how we were, you know, this was back in the days of like one home phone landline. And I was a teenager and we would be disagreeing over what time the calls could come in or had to stop. And, And I would say, but dad, what if my friends need to talk to me And it's after a certain time, like at that age, there was going to be some crisis that happened after 10 p.m. that they absolutely needed to speak to me, right? Which is completely absurd. And yet that... You never know. That has been, um, that's just been such a core part of who I am. I love to listen to people more than I love to talk. this is a little bit unusual for me because usually in a conversation I'm asking questions and I'm doing most of the listening. Um, you know, and that's, that's what I love because I love hearing about people and getting to know people and, and trying to understand people. And I mean, similarly, like, you know, second grade playground recess, I'd go to the, child who is playing by themselves. And I remember say, saying, you know, but we don't, I don't know what her life is like for her to be acting this way, you know? So that's always kind of been a driving force that it's hard for me to say, who am I apart from caring about people? I, I can't explain it. It's not like, I can't identify a particular reason that drives it. It's just, It's just kind of always been there. I love that. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And listeners, you all have a truth too. And just like Rebecca, you may not be able to define it or explain it or put words around it, but each and every human out there has got that truth. And when we can turn back to our truth, back to ourselves and reground to who we are, it does shift everything. Whether it's negative feelings within yourself or negative conversations you're having with other people or just the idea of a stressful conversation that may or may not be going on. So return to that truth, have trust in that truth because who you are right now is absolutely more than enough. Rebecca, where can listeners get a hold of you and learn more about your courses, your work, and truly educate themselves on how to become an anti-racist or a better ally? Well, there's a couple options. If people are interested in the Quest framework, I gave just a couple examples from that here, they could actually access and download a full um, description of it along with multiple examples and descriptions for free that they can find at feeldeeplylivecompletely.com slash five ways. And 
through that or through emailing me directly, they can get onto my email where I send out just weekly support, encouragement, suggestions, useful articles or resources, kind of a variety of things. And that's also where people can learn more about different courses that I offer periodically. And there's one other option if, if people are on Facebook right now, I have um, a page that relatively new page, but there is a social justice compassion to action page on Facebook. And I try to post things there regularly also. Thank you, Rebecca, so much for being here, for having a brave conversation with me so our listeners can hear and learn and know that they're not alone and know that this is difficult and know that together we can make a difference whether we're doing small things or big things and that no matter how they are feeling right now in this moment, they can always feel better. And at the end of the day, trusting in their truth and living, like you said, in alignment with their own values. Thank you again. Thank you. You're welcome. And listeners have an amazing weekend. Always remember to flaunt exactly who you are because who you are is always more than enough. Tune in next time to Flaunt. Build your dreams, live your sparkle with radio host Laura Cheadle every Wednesday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Overcome the need to please and find the uninhibited joy of being exactly who you are right now. Come find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. Find out more and get your free gift at lauracheadle.com. That's L-O-R-A-C-H-E-A-D-L-E.com.